We've been looking at this incident in Antioch where Peter segregated himself from Gentile Christians and he was effectually communicating to the church that the works of the law hold the people in right relationship to God, that grace and works is what makes you right with God. And so before the whole church of Antioch, Paul calls Peter out. He says, what you're doing is wrong. You're being a hypocrite, Peter. The gospel is how one is justified. One is justified through Christ alone, not through works of the law. And so that's this incident that's happening in Antioch. And as I said last week, that starts in verse 11. It goes all the way to verse 21. It's the same incident. Last week I ended the sermon saying that justification through faith in Christ is meant to transform you. It's meant to change your life. It's not meant to leave you the same. It's a way of life that looks a lot like dying and it looks a lot like living. A new way of life only possible in the new covenant age. A way of life that Paul gets into today. Where he gets to that pinnacle in Galatians, in my mind, the highest point, where he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. And so as we look at this amazing passage today, I want you to see that this is an all or nothing kind of faith. There is no middle ground. And then I want to answer the question, what does it mean to live by faith in the Son of God? What does that look like? How do we do it? So again, I'm reading this whole account in Antioch. I'm going to read the whole account from verse 11 to verse 21, although we're really just focusing on verses 17 to 21 today. So follow along with me, Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, it is Christ then, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, 
then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Father, how we need your Spirit to speak to us this morning. To understand these weighty words, and more than intellectually, but with our heart and the depths of our being, to be transformed by Christ, crucified and living, justifying those who have faith in him. Oh, Father, help us to understand, to be changed. I pray you would help me this morning to speak these words of truth with authority and to glorify you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So the first thing we need to do is review our definition of justification if we're going to understand this passage at all. Justification is a legal term for when a person has been found innocent. They are not guilty according to the law. So the judge has looked at the evidence of their life, and based on that evidence, he declares not guilty. And that action is justification. He's justifying them. The opposite would be, if he finds them guilty, they are condemned. So, being justified means that you are in right standing with the law. You are good. So that's justification. And now, horrifically, no one is good according to the law of God. Nobody is in right standing with the law of God. And so you, before you get to the good news of the gospel, you need to come to the bad news that you are condemned under the law. No one is good enough. Everyone has sinned and violated the law. Everybody will be condemned. Romans 3, 10 and 11, which is very familiar. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for, go- for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. That's God's indictment against every single human being. There is no one who is good, no way to be good, no way now that we are condemned under the law. There is no way to fulfill the law, to meet its standards, to be justified by the law. And last week I also got into how you are condemned under the law, even if you've never heard of the law before. And so if you missed last week's message and you're curious about that, I encourage you, go online and listen to it. It's there for you. Now, in saying no one is justified by works of the law, Paul is admitting something about himself and about Peter and about the rest of the Jews. He's admitting that they are sinners just like Gentiles. They are not in any better position. They are all at the same level of being condemned under The law, but they are the Jews. They are the keepers of the law. They are the people of God. If anybody is in right standing, should it not be them? No, Paul is saying we are sinners just like the Gentiles. We are no better. Condemned under the law. Eternal, this is an eternal condemnation. A hopeless, horrific situation. So there must be another way. If God is loving and if he is merciful, if he cares at all about anybody, 
There must be another way. He must have provided a way, and he did, outside of the law. He went beyond the law. He provided a way beyond the law. The only way to be justified, as Paul is saying, is through faith in Jesus Christ. And he's been hammering this again and again and again. He says this. The only way to be justified is through faith in Jesus Christ. Believing that Jesus died to receive our punishment for failure to uphold the law. Our violations are punished on the cross in Jesus Christ. And then rising from the grave, he brings freedom and life. He reconciles us to the law which we have broken. And that's called justification, that he justifies us by his own death and resurrection. And we put our faith in him for doing that. We are justified. And last week I said there were five things that happen the moment that you are justified. One, your sins are forgiven. Two, Jesus silences the voice of any accuser that might come against you to condemn you. Three, you are given the righteousness of Christ. Four, you are united to Christ, like a husband is united to his bride. And five, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and now God comes to reside in you, in the person of the Spirit. So, simply by believing that God has done this in Jesus Christ, you are justified. These five things are true of you right now. And forever, you are justified. Okay, that was all review. But it leads us to a very alarming question. It's a question, I think, that, were, that was being raised in Galatia by these false teachers. It's a question that Paul addresses. Look at verse 17. If we... In our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Okay, if faith in Christ means that you're guiltless, when in fact the law proves that you are guilty, how is this justice? You are guilty according to the law. How is Christ not promoting sin by allowing you, a sinner, to go free? Right? If a jury convicts a violent murderer for their crimes, and then the judge hears their ruling, and he overrules it, and he sets that murderer free, and then that murderer goes out and he kills somebody, who are people coming after? The judge. That man doesn't deserve to sit in that seat. That man has no sense of justice at all. That man is a criminal himself. That man is a servant of sin. So is this what's happening with Jesus? Is Jesus a corrupt judge clearing the penalty for sinners, just saying it's gone when in fact we are deeply sinful? Is he, Jesus, a servant of sin? Well, certainly not. But that's the accusation. 
That's the accusation that Paul is anticipating. That's the accusation that the false teachers in Galatia were making. That's the accusation that Muslims make today. But the accusation misses something critical. Look at verse 18. For if I rebuilt what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. It's hard to see it in the English. But what Paul is doing is he's flipping the accusation on its head. The connection between verse 17 and and verse 18 is unclear. And I think when we read it and really try to understand what it says, it's very challenging. But the Greek helps us. There's an implied link between these two verses. And if we take what's implicit and we make it explicit, it would sound like this. Is Christ a servant of sin? Certainly not. In fact, the opposite is true. If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Christ is not the sinner. I am the sinner if I negate the work of Christ. So, let's develop this. If Jewish Christians are not sinning by abandoning the authority of the law, or they, they are not sinning, rather, by abandoning the authority of the law. Instead, they are seeking an authority that is above the law, that is beyond the law, Jesus Christ, and to be justified in him who supersedes the law. So what would make a Jewish Christian or any Christian a, a transgressor, a sinner, is if they began to take the law and give it the same authority that they give to Jesus. I'll say that again. If we take the law and give it the same authority that we give to Jesus, we are sinners. In this case in in Antioch, it's the food laws, the Jewish food laws being added to grace about what you eat and what you don't eat. Think about how that applies today. People thinking they are superior as Christians because of what they eat and what they don't eat. Does that happen in church today? How about what you don't drink? How about the way you raise your kids? How about how hard you work? Your work ethic compared to these people. You add any of these things to make you superior in some way in your faith. You are a transgressor. You are tearing down. You're re- sorry, you're rebuilding what you tore down. So Paul is admitting that he and the Jews are sinners. And he is saying that abandoning the law as a means of justification, is nothing like this courtroom drama that I laid out before, where the judge unjustly lets this murderer go. The premise of that accusation is just absolutely false. There is a new age of salvation. A new age has dawned. The Jewish Messiah has come in Jesus Christ. Salvation and justification do not come in a set of laws, but they come from the Messiah himself. And this is God the Creator's plan always. He planned ultimate salvation for His people, for all people, would come from this Messiah, as these ancient prophecies have always said. Isaiah 42, 1 and verse 6. 
Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. I am the Lord. I have called him in righteousness. I will take him by the hand and keep him. I will give him as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. So yes, God made covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, and as a a byproduct of that covenant, the law came. But before the law, and during the age of the law, everything was pointing to the Messiah. The law pointed to the Messiah. Moses pointed to the Messiah. Abraham pointed to the Messiah. Everything was pointing to the Messiah. The one who would himself become covenant. A living covenant. And so this transcends the law, does it not? Christ is an authority that is above the law. And so when Peter is writing this letter, the Messiah had already come. And Paul and Peter, they very firmly have placed their faith in this Messiah. So what would be sinful is to now say that the Messiah is not enough to be in right relationship with God. That is sinful. The Messiah is not enough to be in right relationship with, the, with God, and so I will add these food laws into what I'm doing. Or in the case of Galatia, circumcision. The false teachers are pushing circumcision. So seeking salvation by mixing this old covenant in a law with the new covenant in Christ, seeking salvation by mixing them is an abomination to God. That's what makes you a transgressor. You see, that's what Paul is saying in 17 and 18. The Messiah offers forgiveness to humanity for law-breaking. And that isn't sinful, that's merciful. Humanity offering their stained, disgusting, broken laws to God to purchase their salvation, that's sinful. People attempting to be justified through the law are themselves the servants of sin. Do you see how he's flipping the accusation on its head? It's not Christ who's the servant of sin. It's you who add the law that are a servant of sin. He is what also makes him different from that scenario I laid out with the judge, where the judge releases the murderer and the murderer goes out and kills again, is that when we are released, when we are freed from condemnation of the law, he doesn't release us as we are. He recreates us. He makes us anew. You are a new creation in Christ. You have been transformed. So he sends you out as a light of the world, as a salt of the earth, as a son or a daughter of the living God. He sends you out anew. So that you too can show others how they can be made new. So that you too can speak of the mercies of this good and just God. So in the court of God, where we will all one day stand, every effort to justify ourselves through the law is fruitless, is vanity, is is chasing after the wind. 
God, brace yourself, is not impressed with you. God is impressed by his beloved son. And so you must die. Verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. This is an all or nothing kind of faith. You can't be kind of dead. You see, this, the law condemns, the law provides no means to earn justification, and in seeking to be justified to the law, by the law, the law becomes a curse to you. And so in response to that reality that we have gone over again and again, we die to our own efforts to be good enough. We must die to them. Knowing we are condemned, we stop giving that law authority over us. It no longer has authority over us. We do not seek life through law, through accomplishment, through achievement, through not drinking this, through not eating that, through raising your kids this way, through homeschooling or not. You are not being justified by any of these things. By the amount that you read your Bible, by the amount that you pray, you are not being justified by these things. We die to the law. Like the saying, you're dead to me. When somebody says that to somebody else, the person isn't actually dying. But that person has no authority in your life, no position in your life. You are removing them from your life. They're gone, right? It's as if they were dead to you. And so we do it with the law. To human achievement to trying to be good enough. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are recognizing that there is nothing that we can accomplish that will make us good, righteous. Jesus has accomplished it all. It is finished. Now, in dying to the law and in putting our faith in Jesus Christ, there's an authority transfer We put our authority now in Christ, Christ crucified. We trust that his life, now risen, is enough to justify our broken lives rather than looking to ourselves to justify it. We live unto God. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we enter into this whole new relationship with the law. It's a reorientation, a transformation that is so radical, the only language that Paul can think of to to make it explode for us is that it's like living and it's like dying. We die to the law, we live to God. It's a life and death situation. Death as we identify with the cross. Life as we identify with the cross with the resurrection. Identities that come with our union with Christ. I said that's one of the things that happens at justification. You are unified in in Christ, to Christ, with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. With Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I want to show you how that works. Because it is deeply mysterious and hard. And we often don't feel like this at all. What does faith in the Son of God really mean? First, this has to be the starting place. You've got nothing if you don't have this. You see that Christ loves you and he gave himself for you. I want to show you that that what we're talking about, you dying to yourself and living to Christ, is not a suppression of you. It is not a suppression of your personality or your creativity or the things that make you, you. You're not suppressing that. He loves you. He gave himself for you. He created you. It's how he wants you to be. He wants you to be free from all sin, from all bondage to the law, so that you can be freely you, so you can have abundant life. He gave himself for you to rescue you from the things that were stealing away your fullness of life. But Christ didn't just do that for you. He did it for all that come to faith in him, that that seek Christ. He's done this for all who come to him. And more than that, he loves you. He gave himself for you so that you would see he loves you and be satisfied by him, to enjoy him, to love him. And when you love Christ like that, he is glorified. This is the primary reason that Christ went to the cross that you would be so satisfied by Jesus Christ that God would be glorified. He died for you. He died for the glory of God. So the first thing was Christ loves you and he gave himself for you. The second thing, faith in Jesus Christ means that you are crucified with Christ. Christ. So this is not, obviously this is not literal. You are not getting nailed to a cross. This is not merely metaphorical or spiritualized. There is a real thing that you are doing in the day to day that crucifies you with Christ. Your desires to be good enough, your desires to be worthy, your desires to be significant, your desires to, uh, de- desires to, be, to be worthy based on your own merit. All of these things must die. Not your desire to be significant, but your desire to be significant because of your merit. That must die. So all those things that you do that, that give you value outside of the cross, outside of Christ, all of those things that, do, that, that you do to give you value, crucify them.
Those things were your own efforts. Those things are your own works. Those are things that you can boast in. And if you can boast in them, if you can be good enough because of your own works, then what do you need Jesus for? No. This is all or nothing. And so we crucify those desires because Christ loves us and he gave himself for us. Think of all of the things that Christ was sacrificing on that cross. He didn't want to get whipped for the sake of it. He didn't want to die in obscurity. He did all of these things to pay for those sins of our own, our own works. And so we... Because he's done this, we give ourselves to him. In these bodies, which are still marked by sin and pride, we must crucify ourselves daily. Like Jesus said in Luke 9.23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Take up your cross daily and follow me. All those efforts, to striving for satisfaction, meriting significance, earning earning worth and love apart from Christ, denying those desires every day, crucifying them every day, that is what crucifies you with Christ. You're not merely, you're not merely dying to these things because you're bad, but because there is something greater, because Christ loves you and he wants you to live in him. He wants to give you something that will actually satisfy you, that will actually give you significance, that will actually give you love, that will last, that is not fleeting, that you don't have to strive and work for. He wants to give you those things. He wants you to rest in the significance and in the worth and in the love that he has to give you. So the third thing is Christ lives in you. He lives in you. And so when I say that we're crucifying our desires, it's not just asceticism. It's just not killing things. It's because our desires are being changed. Our desires are changing to become the desires of Christ. And this is amazing. This is what it looks like to be a new creation in Christ. Christ loves the Father above all things. Now where you used to love yourself above all things, Love for Christ is growing. Where you used to self-protect and love yourself above other people, you find that love for other people is springing up. That's the law. Did you realize that? I just gave you the law. The law is coming alive in your heart. The law has transformed. Jesus summed up the law like this, like I said last week. The most important commandment is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. So the law is transforming from a curse into an expression of your love for God. Because God is changing your desires. In Christ. 
Our selfishness and our pride and our striving, these things need to die so that we can live unto, uh, unto Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Or I am no longer living to satisfy my own desires through selfish efforts. I am living to satisfy every desire in Christ. My selfishness, my pride, my sinfulness, crucified. Alive for Christ. This is amazing. As much as Christ lives in you, he is for you. As much as Christ lives in you, he is for you. And he doesn't come in any partial measure. And so he is calling you to be alive in him. That's what it means to have faith in Christ. It's about a desire transfer, isn't it? A, d- a desire transformation. Seeing he loves you and wanting that love more than anything, wanting to be with him more than anything. And so all of these selfish, sinful things you're crucifying, these selfish, sinful desires you're crucifying and desires for Christ, for others, are erupting. He is changing your heart, making you new. We no longer live for ourselves. We live for him. That is why Christ went to the cross. This was the joy set before him that he endured the cross for. Verse 21 says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So if you or I could have been justified by our own works, Christ died for nothing. If you could have achieved something and been good enough, he died for nothing. Instead, of course, that's not true. He died so we didn't have to. He died so we could be alive. So to add laws on top of that, to say you have to go to confession, to say you have to take communion, to say you have to to be baptized in order to be in right standing with God is ludicrous, is an abomination. Peter's adding food laws. The false teachers adding circumcision. It's insanity. And Paul is furious with this kind of insanity. Anything that would, cause, that would make us feel like we have to do these things in order to be right with God tramples all over the cross. Christ died for no reason. The Lamb of God sacrificing himself for nothing. No. No, human achievement cannot... Add anything at all to your standing with God. As John Calvin writes, For if we do not renounce all other hopes and embrace Christ alone, we reject the grace of God. See, there is no middle ground here. There is, this is all or nothing. Okay. Paul said that he lives in the flesh. He lives in the flesh 
The life he lives in the flesh, he lives by faith in the Son of God. He's living in the flesh, in this body that is still sinful. It hasn't been glorified. Until Christ calls us home and he perfects us, we've got these bodies to deal with. We've still got lingering sin to deal with. We still have got a heart that's pulled in two directions. We are weak, we are sinful, we are self-centered. These diseases still exist in us. So I want to talk about three ways of living by faith so we can get a little practical about this. Some ways that you can live by faith right now in that unperfected body that you're sitting in, or that is you. The first thing we must do, or I think, I shouldn't say it like that, the first thing I think is really helpful to do is to memorize promises in Scripture and preach them to yourself. So let's say that you constantly feel like a failure. You never live up to the standards of God. You can... You know the way that you should be living in Christ and you know you're not doing it and you feel like a failure. Memorize a promise in Scripture that relates to that and preach it to yourself. Like 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. Christ said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecution, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now that's a promise that applies to many hardships, certainly for our feelings of failure. What is weaker than being a failure? Trust that when you are weak, the power of a Christ is at work in you. And remember, that feeling of failure because of your weakness that you feel is your heart tending towards law again, tending towards needing to achieve something again to be right with God. And this promise speaks right to that. In your weakness is when you are made strong. In your failure, your failure highlights the success of Christ. So memorize 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10 and preach it to yourself when you feel like you've got nothing going for you. Memorize Galatians 2.20. When sinful desire comes upon you, preach this promise to yourself. When pride, when worry, when any sinful desire is coming upon you, remind yourself of who lives and who dies. Remind yourself that Christ loves you and he gave himself for you. Memorize Galatians 2.20. The promise is there and preach them to yourself. And that, by memorizing scripture, memorizing these promises and preaching them to, to ourselves, we are living by faith in the Son of God, trusting that he is making that true in us. The second thing we can do so obvious, make time for prayer. So obvious and so overlooked. Pray throughout the day. Prayer is not about relying on ourselves. Prayer is all about looking to God to give us what we need in our dependency, to give us resources, to give us healing, to give us a more joyful heart. It's all about being dependent on God 
You need him to act. You need him to give you grace. You need him to soften your heart. You can't do these things under your own strength. Ask God to act. 1 John 5.14, this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears. Trust that the Father loves it when you pray because you are unified to his beloved Son. You are one in Christ. So he loves it when you pray. You are given the heart of Christ. And when you pray with your heart in rhythm with Christ's, he hears you. And that's to say, not just the words are going into his head, but he acts on it. He hears and he acts. He is moved by our prayers. Being dependent on God as expressed in prayer is a way that we live out our faith in the Son of God. The third thing that we can do is remember the grace of God. Remember the grace of God. Remember what it took to purchase your justification. The perfect Son of God laying down His life, facing shame and agony on your behalf, and you didn't deserve that gracious gift. You did nothing to merit that. But Christ, in His own choosing, He loved you and He gave Himself for you. Okay, so do you know what remembering that is supposed to do to you? What effect it's supposed to have? Romans 12, 3. By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment. By the grace of God, by that gift of Christ on the cross, crucified for you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Remembering that gift given to you is meant to humble you. Again, God was not impressed by your works or your achievements. He's not impressed by you. He's impressed with Christ. You can't help but be humbled when you look at that gift and you're, you're moved by it. You will love others. You will love God. Others are just as undeserving as you. They are just as in need of grace as you are. They are just as loved by God as you are. Let the mercy of God, the grace of God that he has given to you, humble you and not let you think more highly of yourself than you ought. When you remember the grace of God and you cling to that gift and you let that transform the way you look at other people, you are living by faith in the Son of God. You are alive to Christ Brothers and sisters, this is an all-or-nothing kind of faith. You don't do this half-heartedly. This is, this is alive or crucified. This is everything. We lay it all down for him. No work, no achievement will give you more favor in God. Christ has brought you all the favor of God. It's all being lavished on you now. This, adding something to that, Insisting that others do something in order to be in right standing with God is to trample the cross. And that's why Paul calls out Peter. That's why Paul curses these false teachers in Galatia. Because they trample the cross. 
We die to the law so we can live to God. And thankfully, Peter hears Paul's rebuke and apparently he repents and changes his ways because in other letters written after Galatians, they're friendly, they're commending one another, they love each other. And so even if we have messed up and we've elevated something too high, we can repent and let go of those things and walk, crucify those things and now live unto God. Now live by faith in the Son of God. Let him continue to transform your heart, to make law into a way to express your love for God. We are alive in Christ, and Christ lives in us. And last week I told you that there would be a drama depicting this, this very thing. And so in just a few moments, Eric Freischlag is going to come up here and be baptized. He's expressing this commitment that he has made declaring through baptism that it is no longer he who lives, but Christ who lives in him. And I can't wait. What a celebration that is. Bow with me in prayer. What a high calling you placed before us. Impossible to do under our own strength. And so, Father, I ask that you would all the more fill us with your Holy Spirit, uh, Motivate us to greater degrees that we might kill those desires in ourselves, proud, selfish, self-sustaining desires and live unto Christ looking to follow him and take on his desires to love you and to love others. Oh God, transform us all more and more. And we praise you that you loved us And you gave yourself for us. Never let us forget the gravity of that and the humility that it calls us into. We praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.